Amen. Well, it's great to be with you on the week after Easter, um, known in pastor circles as Assistant Pastor Sunday. Uh, it's great to... <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, since it's the week after Easter, uh, this last week I was thinking about another um, sacred event uh, known as the beginning of baseball season. And um, I, was, I was thinking about a couple of years ago, and this must have been the year before the pandemic, um, one of my sons has his birthday um, towards the end of March, and for his birthday, I took him to see the best team in baseball, the LA Dodgers, play a game uh, opening week, not opening day, but opening week, and um, see what you get when you... Uh... <laughs> uh, and so, yeah... <laughs> okay, so we lived in Southern California, lived in Orange County at the time, and so Porter and I are driving up to LA, and there's traffic, of course, and so it takes us like two or three hours to get there. But in the car, we, we left in plenty of time, and we've got the radio on, and we're listening to this radio station that's playing all these great, like, 90s alternative uh, songs that take me back to college and high school. And we've been listening to the radio for like 45 minutes, when Porter looks at me and he goes, he goes, Dad, you know every single song on this station. And I'm like, yeah, that's right, I do. It's awesome, huh? <clears throat> and a few minutes later, um, Round Here by the Counting Crows come on, comes on. And, I mean, August and Everything After is unarguably one of the all-time best records and uh, I love that song. And so we're stuck in traffic, and I'm just like, I'm singing at the top of my lungs. I know every word to that song. I know every inflection. And I'm like into it, you know? I'm just letting it all hang out. And the song comes to an end, and Porter says, Dad, what does that song mean? And I said, what? He goes, what's it mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I know every single noise in that song, and I have no idea what it means. I know all the words. I love that song, but I have literally no idea what they're talking about. And it occurs to me that it's possible that Easter can function in a little bit the same way. We know all the words, but we don't know what they mean. I mean, everybody knows that at Easter, Christians celebrate Jesus raising from the dead. Last Sunday, people all over the world celebrated Easter, probably over three billion people gathering to worship. It's clearly a big deal. We know it's important, but what does it mean? Like Brad said, over these last couple of months, we've been working our way through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, arriving finally at Easter Sunday last week. And today we're finishing up this series with this very famous passage of Jesus appearing to two disciples as they walk along the road to Emmaus. And um, there's something very interesting that I noticed this week in Luke chapter, chapter 24. This is how Luke ends his, his gospel. And in this gospel, there are three accounts of people meeting Jesus after the resurrection. There is the you know, traditional Easter story that we read last week of the women going to the tomb and finding that it's empty. And then there's this story of Jesus appearing to these two disciples. 
And then there's a, a one further story that we're not going to look at, um, but where Jesus appears to his disciples, the 11 disciples. And then he ascends into heaven. And if you were just reading through Luke, you could read chapter 24 and think that this all happened on one day. Um, he, they go to the tomb. He's not there. He's walking on the road. He appears to the 11, and then he ascends into heaven. But we know from the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, Luke says that, um, in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus appeared on earth for about 40 days. He, he, did, he gave all sorts of proofs that he was alive, and he taught people about the kingdom of God. So we know that there are many more things Jesus did after he rose from the dead that, he could, that, that Luke could have told us about here at the end of his gospel, but he doesn't. And so I think that that means, or that we can infer from that, that, that Luke is saying to us, if you understand what's happening in Luke 24 then you will understand the meaning of the resurrection. And especially this passage, especially if we understand this passage, what's going on as Jesus appears to these two disciples, if we understand this narrative, then I think Luke is telling us that we will understand what the resurrection means because the very same things that happened to these two disciples can happen to us. The exact same experience that they had on that first Easter Sunday is available to us today. Now, you might think, how is that possible? Because Jesus isn't going to literally appear and walk alongside and explain the Bible to me. Well, stick with me, and let me explain it to you. So the first thing that I want to show you, that I want to talk about, is the question of spiritual blindness. Let's talk about spiritual blindness Spiritual blindness, I don't know how those words strike you, but that, gosh, I mean, that's bad, right? <laughs> um, spiritual blindness sounds heavy. It sounds like something that must be reserved, reserved for like especially evil people or especially irreligious people, right? But look at what's happening in this passage here. This passage is telling us about these two followers of Jesus, um, one of whose name is Cleopas, the other whose name we, we, we don't know. And they've been in Jerusalem, and now they're going home. And presumably what's happening here is that in the weeks leading up to this day, um, as, as we've worked through the book of Luke, there's this sense that, that something is happening, and Jesus is, people are beginning to recognize that Jesus is somebody to pay attention to. And he's been moving towards Jerusalem. And on Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem, and the crowds acclaim him and hail him and praise him. And there's this sense of expectation that something is going to happen. That something, Jesus is going to make something happen. And we know, of course, that what everybody, what all the Jews are hoping that Jesus is going to do is he's going to lead an uprising and he's going to overthrow the Romans who occupied their land. And he would set them free from oppression or he would die trying. That's what every would-be Messiah did. They either, you know, the, the, the plan was try to set the Jews free from oppression or die trying, right? And Jesus fulfilled the or die trying part. And so on Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem. The crowds are ecstatic. And Cleopas and his friend, presumably, they, they obviously don't live in the city, and so presumably they came to be a part of it at some point. They are, they are true believers. They are people who hear that, okay, now is the time when the Romans will be overthrown. And they're like, we've got to get in on that action. We want to be there. 
but things don't go the way that they expected, and Jesus died, and they're heading home. And they are literally looking Jesus in the face, <laughs> and they don't see him. Right? That's, that's what spiritual blindness looks like. And so spiritual blindness isn't for the especially bad or the especially sad people who don't believe in God or deny the resurrection. I mean, look at what Cleopas and his friend say here. They, they summarize like everything you have to believe about Jesus' resurrection. They say that he was a prophet. They say that he was mighty in word and deed. They say that they believed that he would redeem God's people. And they even appear to believe in the resurrection. You know, they say some of our women went to the tomb and it was empty. And angels said that, they, that he had raised from the dead. And they've just articulated like what the creeds tell us is true about the resurrection of Jesus. They believe it all, but they don't understand. They, they can't see him. They're blind. And their experience, I think, sheds light on our own experience and it shows us that there are, there are really two causes of spiritual blindness. And the first cause of spiritual blindness is this, that they don't understand the power of the resurrection. They say all of the right things, but they don't understand what it means. So again, picture what's happening here. They're walking down the road. They're talking about everything that's happened. They're not debating about whether or not it really happened. They, they appear to believe that it did happen, that it took place, but they're confused. And so they're talking about it. And as they're talking together, a stranger appears on the road and starts walking with them and starts talking with them. And the stranger joins them and says, what are you talking about? And um, it says, um, <laughs> this struck me this week. It says when the stranger asks them, um, what are you talking about? It says that they stood still looking sad. They're walking along the road and then Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus, says, what are you talking about? And it says they stopped in their tracks and they look sad. They're, they're depressed. They're despondent. They are heartbroken because even though in some way they seem to believe that maybe Jesus rose from the dead, they can't fathom the reality of the resurrection. They've put their hope in the expectation that Jesus was going to lead an insurrection, and then he died, and their hopes died with him. And so they're hopeless, they're, they're despondent. And I think that we have to see here that their, de their depression points to an honesty that few of us are willing to embrace if we're, if we're really honest. See, Apart from the power of the resurrection, what these two followers or former followers of Jesus are experiencing, this, this despondency, this depression, is really the most honest um, take that we can have on life. The ending, the, re the, re the re reality is that apart from the power of the resurrection, death has the final word. Um, we all experience this in multiple ways over our lifetimes, right? The end of a job or a career that we loved and found meaning in. The end of a vacation or a, a season of life. And of course, the end of, the end of relationships. The death of people that we love dearly. And typically what we do is we try to, um, I don't know, we try to distract ourselves or we console ourselves with nice thoughts. You know, it, it, it was his time. Uh, this is the way all things go. She will live on in our memories. But few of us, 
I think, really have the guts to be as honest about the tragedy of death as these two disciples. We tend to not be as honest as they are. We tend to not want to admit that life without resurrection is utterly heartbreaking. Tim Keller has this great line, um, you know, we live in a world that says that life as we know it came as a result of random chance and that nothing happens after you die. And so Keller says, modern society says that we came from nothing and we're going towards nothing, but in between life is incredibly significant and meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reason we're here. We're going towards nothing. But we have this brief, you know, cosmically insignificant period of time during which we live. And during that time, it's incredibly meaningful, and we need to treat people with dignity and respect and value. And that is utterly incoherent if we're fully honest. And Cleopas and his friend here are inviting us to have the honesty to admit that if all of our hopes will end in death, that our future is incredibly bleak. And when we can't distract ourselves with platitudes or distract ourselves with fleeting comforts, it will stop us in our tracks like it does for them. So the first cause, (laughs) is this the good news you're hoping to to hear about the, the Sunday after Easter? The first cause of spiritual blindness, both theirs and ours, is, not, is in not understanding the power of the resurrection to breathe meaning back into all of life. But the second cause of spiritual blindness is that they misunderstand their true need. They misunderstand their true need. As Jesus, um, have you ever noticed that Jesus has this habit of asking people questions that he already knows the answer to? And so Jesus asks them a question that he already knows the answer to. What are you talking about? They say, Haven't you heard everyone is talking about these things? And Jesus says, what things? And then um, this is the response. Verses 19 and following, it says, um, They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You see what they're saying? He was crucified, but we hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem us. What they're saying is, he can't be both dead and the one who redeems us. And in that, we see that they had an incredibly shallow view of what their actual need was. For them, the word but means that there's a complete contradiction between Jesus redeeming his people and being dead. See, at this point, Israel had occupied the, uh, Israel had been occupied by the Roman Empire for about 90 years, and everyone expected and knew that one day a Messiah would come, and you would know that he was the Messiah because he would lead this armed insurrection, and he would overthrow Roman oppression, and so a dead Messiah, by definition, is a failed Messiah. And so what's happening here is that in their spiritual blindness, they can't see Jesus because they thought what they needed was something more like a change of circumstances. What they needed was somebody different to rule over them. And they failed to see that their real need is actually far deeper than that. 
And I think it's good to acknowledge that in some ways that is always the way that we come to Jesus. You know, we come to God because we have a need. God, I need a different job. Jesus, my marriage is in shambles. God, I don't know what to do about my, my, about my kids. We come to Jesus and we ask him for help with our circumstances. And Jesus often in his kindness does help us with, his, with our circumstances. And yet, if we never see the true need beyond or beneath our circumstances, we will never really see what Jesus is doing. We will be blinded to who he really is. The phrase, they crucified Jesus, but we hoped that he would be the one to redeem us. It's like a situation in a movie where, um, as the audience, we already know what's going to happen, but we have to watch the characters kind of bungle around in the darkness. Because what we know is that it is through his death that Jesus actually redeems us. Uh, The word redeem means to buy back. And so, um, you know, if you are short of cash, you could take something that you own that's of value and you can take it to a pawn shop and you can exchange it for money. And then if you make that money back, you can go to the pawn shop and you can redeem whatever you left there. You can buy it back. You can make it yours again. And what we know in light of the fuller story of Scripture is that our need is much deeper than our circumstances. Our true need isn't a change in circumstances. Our true need is to be bought back from the power of sin and death. And that if we, can't, if we have been redeemed from the power of sin and death, we can thrive in whatever circumstances we find ourselves here. And so uh, Brad, Brad said there was an irony in this passage, um, Jesus not knowing what everybody's talking about, the, the events that have taken place over Easter weekend. Um, but there's another irony here in this passage. The irony here is that they believe Jesus' death is the great tragedy, but because of the resurrection, we see that Jesus' death is actually the very means of our redemption. Jesus redeems his people not by changing our circumstances, by overthrowing Rome and killing the bad guys. No, Jesus redeems us. He buys us back from the power of sin and death by giving his own life in exchange for ours. True redemption lies not in a change of circumstances, but in redemption from sin and from death. And yes, because God is kind to us, he often changes our circumstances along the way, and yet, Unless we look beyond our circumstances and see the true depth of our need, that our true need isn't a little bit more, a little bit better, a little bit nicer, but that our true need is healing from sin, healing from the sin that has been committed against us, healing from the sin that we perpetrate against others, we will remain spiritually blind just like these two here in this passage. So spiritual blindness, but the second thing that we see in this passage is how Jesus overcomes our spiritual blindness. And this is great because what Jesus does for these two is available for us today as well. It's actually like we're doing this very thing this morning. Because think about this. Jesus is walking with these two disciples who are heartbroken uh, because they, they, they can't see who he really is. And Jesus doesn't just stop and look at them and say, Guys, it's me. <laughs> right? 
Why doesn't he do that? Well, the two things that Jesus uses to overcome our spiritual blindness are the same two things that are available to us today, a story and a meal. And the story and the meal are the two realities that push back against the same two causes of our spiritual blindness. So first, there's a story. Verses 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus looks at them and they are sad and he says, well, let me explain the Bible to you. It's all about me. It's all about me. You know, it's human nature to come to the Bible and see it as a fairy tale, to see it as a um, list of things that we need to do in order to earn God's approval. It's human nature to come to the Bible and see it as a, maybe a collection of inspirational stories. It's, it's human nature to do this in a variety of different ways, but what they all have in common is that we come to the Bible and we expect that somehow it's really about us. It's really about me. And, you know, um, that might make you feel good for a little while, unless you take it seriously and are really honest with yourself. And, and if you are, it will crush you. It will absolutely crush you. If the Bible is about me and what I must do, I will either be naive to what the Bible is actually asking of me, or I will be crushed by my inability to live up to what the Bible is calling me to be. If I think that the Bible is about me, I will, I will try and I will fail, and I will realize that death is the end. And if we are really brutally honest about that reality, we will be depressed, we'll be crushed. But Jesus isn't saying the Bible is ultimately about you. He's saying the Bible is ultimately about himself. It's ultimately about himself. He is the champion who overcomes our enemy. Um, there, there are so many great ways to explain this, but um, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a, is a children's Bible that basically goes mostly through the story of the Old Testament and points out what Jesus is saying here, how the Bible is ultimately about him in every single one of the stories. You can tell by the duct tape that we've read this a lot in our family. But I just want to read you a couple paragraphs from the Jesus Storybook Bible that is, illustrates what Jesus is saying here. It says, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, who's thrown everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole, story, whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. You know, we live in a culture 
that says life is all about you. It says you've got to look inside yourself, you've got to discover who you really are, and then you've got to broadcast that to the world. And at the same time that that has become the, the dominant narrative on our culture, we are also, by any metric available, more anxious, more unhappy, more depressed as a people than we have ever been. But did you see what happened a, a little bit later in the story after Jesus disappears? Cleopas and the other person, they look at each other and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he explained the Bible to us? When Jesus tells us that life is really not about us, but it's about him, that doesn't strip away our dignity. It actually infers to us a unique sort of dignity. And the result is that far from being depressed, they were depressed and now their eyes are open and their hearts are aflame because they see that the whole story is about Jesus. We were not created to be at the center of the universe and the pressure that comes with being told you are at the center of the universe is crushing us. But Jesus invites us to see that he is the center of the story. And when we see that, that our lives revolve around him. It doesn't diminish our worth or our significance. It actually brings dignity. It brings value to everything that we do as we see that the one who created and upholds and redeems and rules over all of creation cares about us as individuals. You have those scriptures that Jesus explained to those two disciples at your disposal. You have them right here. But the second way that Jesus overcomes our spiritual blindness is in a meal. A story, but a meal. And they get to their destination, and it says that Jesus pretended like he was going to keep traveling, and they, they urged him, and they said, no, it's late, come in and stay with us. And so they go in, and Jesus immediately makes himself the host of the meal. And Jesus, it says, takes bread, and it says he blessed and broke it. He blessed and broke it, and they recognized him, and he vanished. That's kind of weird, right? <laughs> What's going on? Well, obviously, when we see this, and it says that Jesus took bread and he blessed and broke it, we think of the Lord's Supper. And definitely, there's a, there's a connection here to the Lord's Supper, but it occurred to me as I was studying this passage this week that this is the first Easter Sunday. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper four days before that, and it was just the 12 disciples that were there. So Cleopas and this other disciple weren't there at the Lord's Supper. And so probably what they were thinking of was, was something different. And if you go back a few chapters further in the Gospel of Luke, we I actually preached on this a couple of weeks ago here. Uh, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it says he took the loaves and he blessed and broke them. And so there are three places in, in Luke where, where Luke uses those same words. He blessed and he broke. When he feeds 5,000 at the Lord's Supper and then here. He took the bread and he blessed and broke it. And what we saw when we looked at that passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000 was that what Jesus was doing there is not simply providing for the immediate needs. I mean, the people would have been fine to not have a meal for a couple of hours, but what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, I'm the one who gives you life. 
life in its fullness, life at its essence. And so what he's doing here is he's reversing the second cause of spiritual blindness. They had misunderstood their true need. They thought that their need was a change of circumstances. And what they really needed was a reversal of death, healing from the power of death. And so here Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. And in a very spiritual way, but in a very real way, what he's doing is he's giving them what they really need. He's handing them life and pointing to himself as the one who has overcome death. And they take the bread and they receive the life that he offers and their eyes are open and they see him. And they are transformed in an instant. And they immediately, they've just said to Jesus, it's too late, you can't go any further tonight. And what do they do? They are so transformed, they have to respond. And so they get up and they run seven miles back to Jerusalem because they've got to tell the others what happened. They were depressed and now their hearts are aflame. They were hoping for a change in circumstances. And now they have been given real life. The resurrection means that God is breathing life back into our world and death, death itself has been overcome. I was reminded this week of a um, video I saw a couple years ago of a, a researcher and this was a, an archaeologist who was examining artifacts that had been recovered from the Titanic. And the Titanic sank, and for years and years, everything that was on the Titanic just remained buried at the bottom of the sea. And then as technology has approved, divers have been able to go down and recover items, and they, uh, this man was a researcher in the lab where they were opening and carefully you know, unwrapping these artifacts that have been submerged in the Atlantic Ocean for, I don't know, 100 years, something like that. And, and he said, when you recover items from the Titanic, it's wet, it's rusty, it's rotten. He says it smells awful. And, and he says that in the lab, it's a kind of death that you have never experienced. He says, opening these things, it's like the stench of death just overwhelmed his lab. But then he describes these vials of perfume that had been, <laughs> that had been recovered. And he begins to get teary, he begins to weep as he talks about bringing these vials of perfume up and opening them in his lab. And he, he says, all of a sudden, the fragrance of heaven moves through the room. And it overpowers the death and the decay all around. And he says, for a few minutes, it's like the ship was alive again. And I think that image of the, the, the aroma of heaven overwhelming the stench of death. <laughs> Friends, that's the meaning of Easter. The resurrection means that God is breathing life back into our world. And that death has been overcome. Amen. Let's see if there are any questions. No questions for the Q&A this morning. Okay, well, if you have any questions, I would love to talk with you afterwards. Let me pray for us as we uh, come to the Lord's table. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for not only your resurrection, yes, of course, but for the way that you come to us for the way that you come to us in our own blindness, God, in our, 
in our inability to see you for who you really are. God, we confess that whether we have been in church every Sunday, whether we have struggled uh, with the church, whether we have just shown up on a whim this morning, that we all bring assumptions and expectations with us that make, us, make it hard for us to see you as you truly are. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to have the courage to see the depth of, of our need and the reality of the human condition apart from your resurrection. And because we have seen that, that we might, even this morning, as we have heard the story, as we come and eat this meal together, would our eyes be opened and would we be enabled, enabled to see you as you truly are? We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.